Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute, and I am flying solo today. My co-host, Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute, uh, is uh, off doing uh, other things, can't join us today. Uh, So it's just going to be me uh, and our guest, uh, who I will introduce in a minute. But uh, please subscribe on all the various platforms and uh, please leave reviews so that we know that people are actually listening. So, we have been doing semi-regularly on the program a series of episodes devoted to different countries, and today we are going to be looking at Poland, which just had an election and has been periodically in the news for a number of different reasons, Uh, and to guide us in this discussion is Ben Sixsmith, who is there on the ground in Poland. So, uh, welcome to the program, Ben. Hi, Josiah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And uh, where are you located in Poland? I live in a town called Tarnowski Guri, which is in uh, Silesia in the southwest of Poland. Okay. All right. Many years ago, spent a summer in uh, Krakow. So I very beautiful country there. Our listeners may gather from your accent that you were not originally from Poland. How long have you lived there and how did you come to to be there? So I've lived in Poland for six years. I'm originally from uh, the UK and I came here just in search of travel and a job. I was offered a job teaching English and thought I'd stick around for a year and then go somewhere else. But one thing led to another and I ended up staying uh, in this town. I don't know what you've got going on in Poland specifically, but you seem to be pretty prolific in terms of writing for American and British publications. I've seen you a lot, for example, in Quillette, which I guess is Australian maybe, but um, maybe the American Conservative, American Affairs, National Review, uh, the Catholic Herald, all, all sorts of different places. So is that mostly what your focus is on is like... Uh, I was going to say political journalism, that's not right, because it's not horse racy stuff, but it's kind of, you know, more broader cultural issues and themes. Cultural and political commentary, yeah. Generally, anything where ideas and the way that people put those ideas into practice intersect. But in practice, it doesn't tend to be very conscious. It's just whatever happens to have caught my curiosity at a particular time. If you're interested in the right things, that can that can work out, I guess. Absolutely. Okay, so so uh, I want to talk about the uh, Polish political scene and cultural scene and what that all means. I was listening to a, another interview that you did where you mentioned, you know, um, I don't know if this is traditional British reticence or whatever that you know you 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 tried not to like comment too much about on. Polish politics because you felt like you didn't want to be rude as a as a guest in someone else's country, uh, which I totally understand. So I may ask at various points for you to not give your own opinion so much as just you know relay the perspectives of various groups or other people in Poland. You know what they might think about things. Uh, if that that is fine with you, yeah, that's fine with me. Okay, great. So let's let's start kind of with the general scene there. They, 
So they just had an election. The governing party, the Law and Justice Party, won the election. And it was not uh, a landslide in the sense that, you know, they didn't get 70% of the vote or, or, I mean, I think they got a majority of the seats, not like a huge supermajority or anything. But it was the case that if you look at the other parties, you know, split all sorts of different ways and their main competitor, you know, they, they outdistanced them by, by quite a bit. So I, I guess in, in America, we're used to having like, um, you know, we have a left-wing party and a right-wing party, right? There's the Republicans and the Democrats, the conservatives and liberals. And at one time there was a, I mean, there, there is, there, there is at least one left-wing party in Poland, and they used to be one of the main contenders, but it seems like recently they, they haven't been doing that well. The last election, I don't think they actually won any seats. Maybe they did a little bit better this time. But so, you know, what are the kind of political cleavages then between the different parties and, and, and factions? Like how would you describe them? So they've quite uh, considerably changed uh, since I arrived here. I think five years ago, say, at the last election, if you were going to try and summarize the difference between the two main parties, which was uh, Civic Platform, which was the governing party about five years ago, uh, four years ago, excuse me, was kind of the more modern party, you could say. And Law and Justice, which is now the governing party, was seen as the more traditional uh, party. So in a Polish sense, that meant that Civic Platform was more culturally liberal, but also more economically liberal, uh, whereas law and justice were more culturally conservative Mm -hmm. and more economically redistributionist because of kind of, you know, social justice than because of supporting families. Uh, Probably their most famous policy is 500 plus, which guarantees now has come to guarantee more than $100 a month for every child. Liberal against conservative, but with the conservatism entailing a far higher degree of economic redistributionism than it would in the United States. As you say, the actual left wing party uh, was consigned to irrelevance, but now a genuine left wing coalition has emerged this election. And they got about 12%, which doesn't sound like much, but is considerable recovery from where they were previously. And also their their voters do skew quite young. Uh, So as the civic platform, which I think is now called the civic coalition, has become less relevant because they don't really have an identity now, you can't really call yourself the modern party when you keep being uh, destroyed in elections. (laughs) So I I see this more left-wing coalition, if it can hold together, as becoming uh, a more significant oppositional force over the next four years. And then uh, there is the PSL, which is a kind of agrarian party, which has fallen slightly out of favour and doesn't really have an identity anymore. And then there's a more nationalistic party called Confederatia, which is a kind of confederation of nationalist and Catholic traditionalist organisations, which have managed to get a few seats in Parliament, so we're going to kind of challenge uh, law and justice from the right. So there are many, many different competing factions, and 
it really remains to be seen what kind of d- dynamics that will produce over the next four years. Yeah. So, and w- when you talk about the civic platform or civic coalition or whatever being the more economically and socially liberal party, I mean that's of course a relative thing. But for you know, I, I do not believe, for example, that they would be in favor of uh, legalized abortion. For example, they they always struck me at, as an outside observer that it might they might be more like the equivalent of a Paul Ryan if you're familiar with him, or uh, you know maybe a Mitt Romney, and that the law and justice folks uh, are more in the realm of uh, Pat Buchanan, you know, style of politics. At least you know. That's my outsider's perspective. Would you say that that's like sort of right? Am I missing something there? No, that's a good point. I mean, it's true. Uh, civic platform uh, in American terms would not have been considered very liberal at all because while they were less religious and less inclined towards promoting kind of exclusive vision of the common good, you're right. They they still were generally anti-abortion. They didn't support uh, gay marriage or anything. And now that's what makes the emergence of this party, the left, Levitsa, uh, significant is it's a genuinely progressive in a Western sense party. So they do support uh, liberalized abortion laws. One of their main leaders is uh, an atheist, which I think is, sig- he's, he'd be the first major atheist yeah. figure in Polish politics for a considerable right number of years. I believe that's true. Uh, and the first uh, gay man, the first vegetarian, you know, he'd, he'd be yeah, he'd be solidly within the kind of progressive. So that's a significant change, even if they still command a relatively small proportion of the electorate. So obviously th- there are maybe the signs of a little bit of a bounce back for the left, but there there was at least a period where you know the left seemed to be doing okay i think that they i think that there was like a left wing government back in like the late 90s or something mm-hmm. and we have seen i you know this is not unique to poland we've seen in a lot of countries and particularly in central eastern european countries kind of a a collapse of left wing parties particularly center left parties yeah absolutely i think that has a lot to do with the fact that conservative parties in Central and Eastern Europe are much more economically redistributionist. Yeah. So in America, of course, Bernie Sanders can appeal very much to uh, working class voters who want uh, health care, who want a lower retirement age, uh, these kind of economic interests, whereas it's much more difficult for a left-wing party in Central and Eastern Europe to try and outflank even a conservative party on economics, especially when more liberal voters are often more liberal economically as well. So you can talk to someone in Poland who's sounding very progressive and you'd think he'd be a big supporter of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but then he'll come out with something about how terrible it is that the government is subsidizing stupid alcoholics to have five children and, you know, <laughs> right, right, yeah, social Darwinian stuff. Um, so they can't, the left can't rely on traditional working class voters and it can't rely on more socially liberal voters. So it hasn't really had a demographic that it can rely on. Yeah, that is interesting. You wrote 
something recently, I'm forgetting the venue specifically on this topic about how the law and justice was showing kind of a possible redefinition of conservatism that wasn't quite so hostile to redistribution. Do you recall the, the piece that I'm that I'm talking about? Yeah, it was from the Daily Caller's American Renewal yes. series. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so th- that is something that I think, you know, it seems to be a trend in a lot of places, at least in terms of rhetorically. I don't know. If you look at like the, the U.S., the policy doesn't really seem to have changed under Trump as far as any of that, as opposed to a standard Republican and, ter- you know, like they did a big corporate tax cut, right? <laughs> you know, that was their new, that was their new uh, policy. But, you know, rhetorically, it definitely seems like right of center parties all over the place have kind of adjusted some of their hostility towards redistribution. And this has caused like a lot of consternation, particularly among conservative intellectuals or whatever, for limited government free market type stuff is kind of like a core part of the identity. What are your thoughts on that? Is this kind of a a situation where conservatives win by abandoning the essence of conservatism? Is it kind of a more of a natural evolution to new you know, change circumstances. Do you have Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, firstly, it depends what you mean by the essence of uh, conservatism. I mean, obviously, that would be a very disputed subject. But I mean, it's it is it's not so much a change. In, it's not so much of a change in Central and Eastern Europe because conservatism doesn't really have this kind of aristocratic heritage that it does in Britain, or this kind of very liberal heritage that it does in the United States. So it, it's not it's it's not especially contradictory to have conservatives who are also supporting state intervention into the economy, and that would be much more difficult in the U.S., where right-wing parties do have this uh, liberal heritage, and of course uh, a significant donor base in finance and in among the one percent to steal. Uh, left wing. So it would be much more difficult to apply. But I do think in, to some extent in Europe and the United States, people like uh, Tucker Carlson, maybe rhetorically, even people like Donald Trump, though, obviously, he hasn't been terribly willing to apply it in practice. Are seeing that economic liberalism is struggling to conserve the kind of social foundations of nations like uh, the family, like uh, borders. So I, I definitely see it becoming a more significant force in uh, the West, but I'm not sure if it can muster enough support in high places to really become a significant yeah. political force. If the political cleavages or whatever are not so much around the issues of limited government. So law and justice in the last election, they got about half the vote or so, which implies that the other half of the vote went to other people who don't necessarily like law and justice. Now, some of them might not like them because they don't think they go far enough. And But from the critique of law and justice, what are the things that someone who was, you know, a supporter of the left or of the civic coalition, you know, what would they what would they point to as cleavage points? You know, what are the things that they would point to that this is why they're taking a, the country in the in the wrong direction? So I think it's significant, the kind of demographic split as well, just to set this in context, because 
supporters of peace are much more uh, likely to live in small towns and rural areas, uh, whereas supporters of uh, Civic Coalition and Levitsa are much more likely to live in major cities. Supporters of peace also skew slightly older, I think slightly more male, though um, not, not as significantly older or male as with um, urban dwelling. I think there are economic disagreements and social disagreements. The economic disagreements being, especially for supporters of civic coalition, they just think they're spending money that Poland can't keep spending. Um, and they worry that uh, they've peace has been coasting on Poland's economic growth. And when there's an economic downturn, uh, its social benefits just won't be affordable. Uh, but more significant is, I think, its relationship uh, with the church, which is not to say that its opponents, uh, for the most part, even not religious, but they tend to be much more secular. And there's been a lot of controversy surrounding the church and social conservatism in general this year. Uh, Poland had its first major kind of child abuse scandal. Uh, there was a documentary film released this year, which was kind of ubiquitous, uh, was watched tens of millions of times about cases of uh, clerical uh, sexual abuse. And then there was a big scandal about an LGBT march that was attacked by uh, nationalists earlier this year. Uh, and this has kind of radicalized, as I see it, Poland's social liberals, and they've become much more vocally uh, secularist, much more vocally feminist and um, pro-gay rights. And also significantly, uh, there are big constitutional disagreements. Peace want to make certain changes to the judiciary, which they see as deconstructing kind of remnants of the old communist past, but their opponents see as being an attempt to uh, overturn the independence of the judiciary. And kind of over the top of this, I do think just beyond ideology, a lot of Peace's opponents really dislike the people involved, just as American Democrats often have a kind of hatred for Trump that transcends the things he actually does. Right. A lot of Polish liberals have a hatred for Jarosław Kaczynski, who's the chairman of Peace, that kind of transcends what Peace does because they just see him as... Uh, corrupt or dishonest uh, figure, fairly or otherwise. He and his brother, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were like child actors? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know uh, as much about him as a personality. Does he does he code as lower class, I guess, you know, it were working class in some way? Uh, is he seen as vulgar or is he seen as more of like, a Machiavellian string puller or, or what? Uh, he's definitely seen as Machiavellian string puller. I mean, to some extent, he undeniably is. Right. I mean, the, disagree the disagreement really comes down to whether you think he's pulling the strings for good or for ill. Because the best decision he ever made was to withdraw from electoral politics because uh, voters weren't so keen on electing him. But when other less known figures stepped forward and ran for president and prime minister, they did much better. Given how much power he's maintained, despite not really having an elected position, he is definitely a string puller. And people who oppose peace 
resent that very much in the way American liberals used to resent Dick Cheney because they see him as this all-powerful force behind politics. But of course, people who support peace would think that he is doing the best for the country. And I suspect, I've never seen any kind of studies on this, but I suspect they'd see it as kind of he's too humble to push himself forward at every opportunity. And he's, you know, he doesn't want to make all politics about himself. Right. His brother was president, right? And then, I mean, he died in a plane crash. And I, I gather that there are like some conspiracy theories surrounding it as there often are with such things? Uh, his brother did die in a plane crash, along with mu- uh, either much or most of the government um, when they were visiting uh, Russia to commemorate uh, the Katyn massacre. And there were a lot of conspiracy theories. I should say, I know absolutely nothing about the conspiracy theories, so I can't comment on their validity. Uh, but it was definitely a blow to peace uh, throughout the last four years. They really invested a lot in those conspiracies being true. The former, uh, I think, defense minister, I'd have to check that, Antony uh, Macerevich, was a very big supporter of the idea that there was a conspiracy uh, behind the plane crash. And they had this huge investigation, which was immensely polarizing. Um, and it didn't really come to anything, which was a bit of a blow for peace. Right. And uh, Macerevich ended up being sidelined. And generally now people just, uh, for better or for worse, they don't talk about those theories anymore. They're kind of passed over because it was a bit of an embarrassment. Yeah. In America, we wouldn't know anything about anti-Russian conspiracy theories that go on for years and then suddenly get dropped. Uh, <laughs> when, so when I, you, you mentioned like the relation of the church to the government. When I was in Poland, there was a a big subject of discussion was this uh, Radio Maria. I don't know. Are they still around? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a religious broadcaster with a strong political tilt. And there is, of course, this is back, this is back when um, John Paul II was still the Pope. Uh, so it was, a, it was a while ago. Now there is, uh, is it like a weird phenomenon where if you're really super Catholic, it means you don't like the Pope <laughs> necessarily? Is like is that at least that that's been true here in the states to some degree? Is that is there a similar dynamic at work in Poland among the more conservative groups? Because I know, for example, that you know Pope Francis has been very outspoken on the immigration refugee issue, which seems to be something where the law and justice folks and actually really probably Poles in general are not that thrilled with it and you know maybe some other uh, other similar sorts of stuff so does pope francis kind of loom large in the discussion at all and how is he viewed there um as far as i can tell uh he's doesn't really loom large at all i just heavily connected with catholic church over here but i suspect if uh someone was visiting poland and knew nothing about catholicism they just assume that john paul was still pope because he's just so much more present uh symbolically and in discussions for obvious reasons definitely i mean at the risk of being slightly condescending i think uh polish liberals really blow up the influence of the church and to some extent uh uh father ridchik who owns radio maria as being again being this kind of 
omniscient and all-powerful force. Um, but actually, Polish bishops have been relatively pro-refugee, which uh, the government kind of politely ignores, and I think most Catholics politely ignore as well. So the Polish church as a whole, I wouldn't uh, suggest as hostile to Francis, but I think the average Polish Catholic is kind of quietly, not so much ignoring, but definitely not elevating him above their memory of John Paul. Right. There certainly is the ability of Catholics in all sorts of situations, all sorts of countries to maybe sometimes selectively tune out uh, the Pope when he says something they don't like. Uh, I've noticed. I, I should say I am Catholic, so I can say these things. It's fine. One other subject that I wanted to ask about was views in Poland of Europe and the European Union. Uh, so when I was there, the European Union was not necessarily viewed positively in Poland, but they were there was very little support for not joining the EU, not being a part of it, because they viewed the alternative as vulnerability to uh, Russia. Mm. So, of course, there's a lot of water under the bridge since then. Uh, I know that there have been, for example, in Hungary, there's been a lot of conflict with the EU and with the refugee issue and some other things, a lot of skepticism toward Europe. Is there, and I would, uh, this would probably be more focused on, you know, the folks who are supportive of the law and justice government as opposed to the, the, the left folks or, or whatnot. But you know, what, how is, how is Europe and the broader European project viewed there? So I think for Polish conservatives in general, there's some, uh, positive feeling towards the idea of uh, the European Union as being a kind of community of nations, at least an economic community. Generally, of course, they're supportive of EU funds coming into Poland, but also generally supportive of free markets between European countries, open borders between European countries. But when it comes to debating whether there should be kind of cultural unity between European nations, whether the European can impose its idea of what uh, human rights represent on Poland. They're much more liable to think the EU has got ideas above its station. Generally, I think Western Europeans imagine that Poland is there to become more like Western Europe, and Polish conservatives are liable to think that Western Europe should become much more Polish. So uh, an uneasy relationship, but not hostile, at least yet. Uh, I think it depends on whether the EU overreaches in trying to make uh, Poland accept more refugees or uh, accept progressive values like supporting abortion or gay marriage or whatever. But so thus far, I think the EU is sufficiently hands off that it hasn't created enough conflict to create the kind of anti-EU sentiment that exists in Britain or Hungary. Or Hungary, yeah. Is there, just specifically regarding Brexit, is there a lot of public attention played there towards Brexit? And I ask specifically because I know there are a lot of, um, I don't know what the uh, official term is, but, you know, migrants from Poland who go and live and work in other EU countries, there are a lot of them in Poland and sometimes have kind of gotten, I think, 
picked on as as examples of people who are in in the UK who are maybe hostile to immigration but don't want to use they, they like to use the Polish migrants as an example because the Poles are white and so they can't there's not a racial element there but is that I mean is that something that really on the radar at all in Poland or do they just view that as you know, it's another country. They're going to do what they're going to do. Uh, it's not really a major concern. It's definitely on the radar. I think they find it quite. I think generally Poles quite find it quite funny. Often, I think Poles have been given the idea that Western European countries are really countries they should be looking up to and imitate. There's a, a certain kind of amusement that's taken in the sheer scale of the dysfunction in Great Britain. But for people who are connected to migrants in Great Britain, there's a much more active interest in their future. Although I think more than most uh, minority population groups in Britain, Poles do kind of have this attitude that things will just work out in the end. There, I, I wrote an article fairly recently about how Poles have been the least likely to sign up to the kind of settlement scheme in Britain. Uh, one Polish journalist said to me, there is a tendency among Poles to think, well, you know, it'll all get straightened out. We don't need to worry too much following it, but not really kind of with anger or consternation unless you own a business that's liable to be hit by no deal. Right. Uh, more with kind of curiosity and very much the way other nations viewed the U.S. when Trump was being elected. I think. Uh-huh. Right. It's very, it, it, a source of entertainment more than anything else. Yeah, I think so. Uh, okay. So we like at the end of episode to ask people were their favorite uh, movie or TV show related to the topic. So do you have a, is there a particular Polish movie or TV show or something that you want to, you want to hype some sort of cultural product? Hmm. That's a good question. Everyone should watch Zim uh, Wojna, which means cold war, which came <laughs> last year. I mean, I think, I think probably more people outside Poland have seen it than people inside, which was true as well of Ida, which came out a few few years ago and won an Oscar, despite I think most people in Poland not really being interested in, which is a weird thing. I think that was that's true as well of the recent uh, Polish Nobel Prize winning novelist. And this is not to cast any aspersions on her, but a lot of Polish people I've spoken to weren't aware of her at all, whereas more people outside of Poland were. Yeah. Um, that's an excellent film. Definitely all the works of uh, Kieślowski. He made a lot of films outside of Poland, but he uh, did a great series of television films called, and the name is escaping me, uh, it's set inside, various stories set inside a tower block, and it's called Decalogue. Absolutely, each of them were uh, focused on one of the Ten Commandments, and which is very great and contains a lot of themes relevant to uh, Polish life as well as his Three Colors trilogy, which is uh, based generally in France, but a bit in Poland as well. Yeah. All right. There was a recent Netflix series of Polish, 1983. Uh, I don't know if that was, I mean, it was, I assume it was Polish, like aired in Poland first or whatever. I don't know if it, that was at all big there. It was on my radar. I never watched it. Uh, I don't have Netflix, but definitely it was on people's radar. Oh, okay. uh, a lot of Polish actors were in it, at least. I can't remember if it was actually filmed in Poland. Yeah, it was originally yeah. in Polish, yeah. So I liked it. And I, I like uh, Cold War, too. I saw that. The The lesson that I took away from Cold War was uh, stay away from Polish women. Cause 
<laughs> they'll destroy your life. I don't know if that was actually. I, I think that's just a, a lesson from films generally. It's a common thing. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, perhaps. So our guest today has been uh, Ben Six Smith. Ben, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. <laughs>